As bikers around the world head to Sturgis, law enforcement officers get additional training to fight human trafficking. From SDPB Radio, it's Friday, July 21st. This is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, we check in with South Dakota's Attorney General, Marty Jackley. We'll talk about new and ongoing efforts to prevent, investigate, and prosecute trafficking. We'll meet an artist performing this weekend at the Levitt. That's coming a bit later in this hour. We'll talk about music and poetry and art with Greta Smith. Plus, even if you are not caught up in the Barbie movie frenzy, you probably remember playing with Mattel's marquee girl and her friends. This hour, we unpack how imaginative play fits into child development. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. News is first. And I'm Lori Walsh. There has been a noteworthy increase in the number of investigations against law enforcement officers in the state, like a 132% increase since 2016. But as John Holt reports in South Dakota Searchlight, that might not be because there were more officer misconduct incidents. He's a senior reporter at Searchlight. He's with me now in the Kirby Family Studio. For context, John, welcome. Sure. Thanks Thanks for being here. Glad to be here. Uh, The numbers come out, and of course, people will jump to whatever conclusion uh, they might be pre-inclined to jump to. But you looked at the context of this, so give us a little background here. Right, right. Uh, You know, and and the context in in large measure is is something that we think about in our society. We talk about this. We think about this more often. So the conversations that I had about why the numbers are going up it's kind of tied to that. You know, people are thinking more about police misconduct and people are maybe more willing to make these complaints. But also, um, every complaint that's made to the Division of Criminal Investigation, which is the, the agency that handles these things, it all goes to the state level now. In the past, it was handled sort of regionally by DCI directors. It might not make it onto the list. And now everything goes to the top. So that's part of the reason that the numbers for complaints are up and investigations are up. So what happens next with these complaints? Because the increase would also create a, you know, do we have enough staff to, to deal with this? How are we going to process these things? Right, right. And uh, this information came out in the uh, Law Enforcement Standards and Training Commission. They meet about four times a year to talk about law enforcement certification for people whose certification has lapsed or they came from another state and they want to work in South Dakota. And they also do these contested case hearings of the investigations where there's actually something to it, right? And what they talked about in the meeting was the need to have some sort of intermediate step because there are complaints that are maybe serious enough to be investigated because the complaint numbers are different from the investigations, right? There's 80-odd complaints last year and only 51 of those were investigations, right? So uh, they're trying to figure out how to handle cases where an officer may not need to lose their certification over what they did, but it's serious enough that it warrants some kind of disciplinary action. So what they want to do is what Minnesota does with about 90% of their complaints, which is to sort of ink an agreement beforehand, and the staff says, yes, this happened. This is what the officer needs to do to remedy the situation. And then they give that to the commission and say, are you cool with this? They say yes. They stamp it, and off it goes. That way they don't have to have a full hearing. And that's kind of their plan to manage 
this spike in complaints. So again, about jumping to conclusions, when I read that part of your story, I thought, do we really want to model ourselves after Minnesota because we understand what a problem the Minneapolis Police Department had? And then I checked my bias there and I kept reading. Um, so again, it's just a reminder of how quickly we jump to conclusions. But there is a transparency question about this yes. that you explored in your reporting. Tell me about that. Yes, yes. So when there's a hearing, um, you know, uh, there, there were three of them last week for different different uh, complaints against officers, uh, it's kind of like a jury trial, right? And the commission is acting as judge and jury, and they talk about what's in the report, what's in the investigation, the facts, right? Um, but they only talk about what the lawyers want to talk about or what the officer wants to talk about. There's a there's a like full investigative file that we don't see as the public, even though it's you know part of this public hearing. So if they do uh, an agreement of this nature, the question was, would the entire investigative file then be released to the public the moment it's handed to a commissioner at a public meeting? And the conclusion was, no, it's not. It's still an investigative file. So we'd probably wind up just relying on um, sort of summaries and rundowns of complaints, which is actually what happens now when a situation does not warrant the full investigative hearing or whatever. The commission comes together and they and they do it like a summary. They're like, oh, well, this person complained about the way this officer treated me. We found that there was nothing to it doesn't need to be in front of you or whatever. So uh, that's probably what would happen here, except in these cases, we're talking about someone who would face disciplinary action. So it'll be interesting to see how this plays out in the future and yeah. what we actually learn about what is going on. Are there things that you wish you could know the answer to right now? I, I, you know, I think people want things broken down. If officers are coming from other departments uh, to South Dakota because they feel this is a, a better climate for them, if people are filing more nuisance complaints? Are there certain departments across the state that are having troubles and need additional training? What are some of the things that you wish you knew or would be watching for in the future, I guess? Well, one, one thing that I really wish that I knew, and I've always kind of wished that I would know, uh, are, are you know the names of these officers in, in a little more detail. Like we're talking about these investigative files where we'd find out you know who did what and when and all that kind of stuff. Like we really don't know that unless the person goes to a full contested case hearing and the facts are all laid out in public. We really don't know. So we'll get a summary that says, you know, Officer Lori Walsh of the Sioux Falls Police Department uh, threw away John Holt's cigarettes instead of picking them up and handing them to him after an arrest or something. You know, and it could be something as small as that. That's a real example of something that happened in the Sioux Falls Police Department uh, and they put out little summaries every quarter of the internal complaints that they handled, the ones that don't go to the state, right? So when you see things like that, it always begs the question, like, so a police officer was uh, under investigation or their behavior was scrutinized on some level and we just have to sort of trust that the little line at the end that says this is unfounded is right. You know, we have to trust that uh, the conclusions made by their fellow officers are an accurate uh, representation of what should have happened when the complaint came in. We really don't know. So, yeah. Well, you can follow John Halt's reporting in South Dakota Searchlight, um, SouthDakotaSearchlight.org. And we thank you for coming in with this update. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Welcome back to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. This week, 65 representatives from law enforcement, advocacy agencies, and the government gathered together in Pierre 
and they got together for comprehensive training on human trafficking in South Dakota. Attorney General Marty Jackley and South Dakota's Division of Criminal Investigation hosted the conference. Attorney General Jackley is with me now on the phone to talk about that and the state's efforts to squash human trafficking within our borders. Attorney General Jackley, welcome back to the program. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, Lori. So we are heading into the Sturgis Rally, and people from all over the world come. Are you receiving any intel, any thoughts of what this rally might be like from a, a, a crime inv- a standpoint, from a trafficking standpoint? We do, and one thing we do very well in South Dakota are collaborative efforts working together. And so early on before the rally, law enforcement and all of our partners, that would be the federal authorities, ATF, the FBI, Um, state authorities, the Highway Patrol, the Attorney General's Office, DCI, and then, you know, important local partners, the sheriffs, the chiefs of police. We meet regularly. Uh, We debrief each other. We talk about operations, what we're we're going to be doing to to make sure we're protecting the public. And so that's all occurring. Uh, It's something that has been done that way for a long time. Back when my dad was state's attorney in Sturgis, and since I've ever been attorney general, we do that and we do it very well. All right. This training that you're just coming out of is fairly new, though. Tell me about Mary Beth Holsworth, your human trafficking coordinator, and what's new in training law enforcement officers as far as what to look for. It is. And so we've recognized in South Dakota that human trafficking prevention and serving victims is extremely important. And Mary Beth is the human trafficking coordinator, and she helped organize the first ever training where we wanted to put together victim services, uh, local government, as well as law enforcement, and do the different phases of what human trafficking involves. So early in the week, we looked at survivors, we looked at some of the risk factors. It then moved into uh, working with human trafficking and domestic violence, how they come together and the power of collaboration. And then really days three, four, and five, and today, is focused on the law enforcement. It's better understanding the dark web, uh, looking at illicit marketplaces, talking about cryptocurrencies and how that's being used to to make sure we're up to date on what the bad actors are doing and how they're doing it so that we can better protect children. Are you seeing artificial intelligence come into play in this work right now? Absolutely. It's something that we saw on a national level as chairman of the attorney generals that was in our last annual meeting a topic that we discussed the good parts of ai ai being artificial and you know we see it in the movies anybody that's watched top gun val kilmer's voice that was done with ai and so there's some good places for that but there's also some bad places and here in south dakota there have been a couple of i believe four federal prosecutions of ai dealing with you know, illicit pictures of children. And the question, you know, certainly facing South Dakota lawmakers and and me as attorney general, do we want to consider additional laws to put in place in South Dakota to address this growing concern? Or do we feel that our federal partners have in place the laws that we need to protect protect society? Um, When we look at South Dakota, part of the advantage, again, we have are our federal partners and our state and local partners work well together. And so in the recent federal AI trial um, or matter, we had a DCI agent testifying. 
And so we, we do work well together, but that is a consideration in South Dakota that I, I truly believe lawmakers need to and will consider. Should we put in place additional laws, perhaps modeled after federal law, uh, with respect to AI and all of this artificial intelligence that we are starting to see nationwide as well as here in South Dakota? In this training this week, were there things that you learned that you didn't know already or something that's made you think more deeply about what you thought you knew about human trafficking? So I didn't obviously get to sit in all five days, but one of them that I was sitting in on the crypto, they talked about how it's being used and how prevalent it is. And I didn't realize this. They did just a quick Google search and peer and came up with three locations. So it is pretty prevalent. Obviously, when you go to an ATM and depending upon the cash amounts you're utilizing from banks, there is a level of regulation, a level of oversight that doesn't necessarily exist with crypto. And I think a lot of Americans and a lot of South Dakotans look at crypto as something new. Perhaps many South Dakotans have invested in it a little bit. Uh, but certainly we in law enforcement are seeing it being utilized more and more with illegal activities, whether it be human trafficking, whether it be drug matters. And so it, it has a level of concern. Uh, we keep an eye closer on it. But I, I learned things that I hadn't seen before with respect to crypto. Um, obviously, whenever you talk about the dark web, that is an ever-evolving area. Uh, I'm an electrical engineer, so I appreciate what technology does, but it requires almost monthly training on new things that you can find and new things that are happening on the dark web. Uh, obviously, some of the Florida trainers that came in had up-to-date information on that technology, and I think it's helpful for the you know our officers that are engaged in trying to prevent human trafficking trying to assist victims one of the things that we do well in south dakota are how we deal with victims and it isn't always the ag's office or the local state's attorney or sheriff's office it are, it is the private side oftentimes faith-based organizations that we partner with to help us with victims to help us spread the word you know, during the rally is an example of that There'll be numerous different organizations that assist in making awareness out there, putting forth different programs available to, to, to survivors and victims, things that we can't necessarily do in law enforcement that make them a very important partner. That was part of what Mary Beth put together on this training is to, to try to, again, bring all of the groups together, the law enforcement side, the survivor side, the other organizations in local government, so that we're not duplicating resources, and we're, we're putting Beth forth the, the best, best prevention and servicing victim programs we can. Um, I mentioned the Sturgis rally and, of course, the overwhelming number of people who show up for the rally are there to do things that are perfectly legal, show off their bikes, have a good time, see a concert, gather with their friends, ride through the hills. What do you want them to know about watching out for human trafficking if they see what, say what, and to whom, how can they be part of the solution? The encouragement is, and, and you're exactly right, there are thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of bikers that come out to enjoy the beautiful Black Hills. They're law-abiding. Uh, they help our economy. It's a good thing. If they see a child acting suspicious or in danger, uh, please let local law enforcement know. 911 works. Call the local authorities um, obviously, we will have a strong DCI presence. 
uh, and a strong law enforcement presence just to make sure everybody's safe, that they can enjoy themselves at the rally. But the encouragement is call law enforcement if you see something, if you hear something, if you're suspicious, because that call might help a child. South Dakota Attorney General Marty Jackley, thank you so much for your time. Always a pleasure, Lori. Welcome back to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Children learn about the world from a variety of sources. They learn from their parents, their teachers, their friends, their storybooks, just to name a few. Well, in honor of the recent release of the Barbie movie, we're looking at what playing with dolls can teach kids and how children use dolls to work through what they've learned from others. Marcy Drew is Director of Education here at South Dakota Public Broadcasting, and she's with me now in the studio. Dr. Drew, welcome. Thanks for being here. Hi, thanks for having me. Did you play with Barbies? I did play with Barbies. I uh, grew up on a farm far away from other people most of the time, so my brother and I did a lot of pretending, and um, Barbies were a big part of that. Yeah, so one of the fun things I found this week is to ask people how they played with Barbies, and that uh, brought up bringing in a child development expert to say, what does this all mean? Yeah. So uh, it doesn't have to be Barbie. It could be an American Girl doll. It could be a rag doll. It could be a, you know, uh, an object that's fashioned into a doll-like um, toy. Why are kids so into dolls? What's happening there? Sure. Um, well, the kids are into dolls because a, a doll like like Barbie or, or any of those, can stand in for us, right, in, in a lot of different ways. So uh, a Barbie or, or any kind of doll can become anybody and experience anything. So maybe as a child I'm working through something that I've seen or heard or experienced or thought about um, or felt, and maybe it's just pure imagination too because those, those uh, characters can go anywhere and do anything, even if, even if you're you know, on a farm in the middle of South Dakota and can't um, maybe go anywhere and do anything. So where did your Barbie go? Like, um, was that literal for you? Like, did she go to Paris? Yes. Or was it just the idea of like her going shopping? Or like, what do you mean by um, that? Say uh, more. It's a little bit of both, honestly. It, it okay. can be something that's, uh, that's real life that uh, maybe you want to experience again or you, you wish you were doing, but it could also be going to space or um, for us, it was uh, it was often that very glamorous, like Beverly Hills kind of life or sure. or something, especially with the Barbies, because that was the that was the they were a little fancy perception. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. So my Barbies went to school obsessively mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. because a lot of kids play school and we used Barbie to and I feel like even then we were processing things yes. at school. We were repeating the rituals of school. They stood in line. Obviously, these are dolls that look like adults to an adult, but to a kid, they were all kids in school. So when we have Barbie, do kids play with them as they present them to us? Like, mine were not adults. Sometimes they were. There was a teacher, but she was the exact same doll as the kid. So where does sort of that age, what were we working out when we were sure. playing school? I guess let's start there. Uh, sure. So I I think, again, the, the point is that they can be whoever 
the, yeah. the child wants them to be. So, you know, you you put the the ball gown on Barbie and she's one thing and you put, you know, the, the pantsuit and she's something else. And so um, I have really seen kids use like the clothes and, and, and those kinds of things to, to designate. But um, it, 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 play, especially pretend play, really is often developing those cognitive skills, going through the thought processes. So yeah. using that opportunity to um, or to reenact something that uh, that maybe went well or maybe that didn't go well, um, to take on a role that you don't get to have. So, um, you know, if you're if you're playing school and you're a, a young child, you might want to have the power of the teacher. Sure. Um, and you might want to figure out how to make friends with that other kid that you would like to play with but don't quite know how. So th- that pretend play can can really help kids practice those um, those thought processes and problem-solving skills and, and language skills, too. Um, you know, how many times as an adult do we go back and go, oh, I wish I would have said this in the, mo- in, in the moment. Um, and kids do that, too, when they're pretending. They, they reenact things and, and, and try to get a do-over and figure out what to say or do. Um, when that happens again in the classroom mm-hmm. because you have a lot of classroom experience how do you create spaces for kids to play to do free play in an age appropriate say in an early learning environment um, how do you set up an environment that is play friendly sure uh, so creating uh, first the physical environment so having uh, the the different kinds of toys and um, and materials available to the kids to access easily um, is really important. And and I think setting up some expectations for when you're done, you put them away and, sure. and we take care of them, but also that it's okay to take the dolls over to the blocks and build a house. Um, it's okay to take some uh, pencils and and crayons over um, and and make a sign or, or make a menu or um, do, do some of those things. So mixing those different kinds of play um, and those different kinds of materials together can really uh, allow kids to expand on on those stories that they're telling and those skills that they're learning. Um, and, and it can help kids who maybe have very different interests find ways to play together and get along, um, which is something that a lot of adults are not very good at, right? That we're not so good at collaboration and, um, and cooperation and, um, and perseverance. So those things are just so important to, to let kids solve problems. And, you know, the great thing about being a young child and pretending and playing is that there's a lot of opportunity for risk where the consequences and the stakes are very low. So sure. maybe we'll spill paint but then we'll just clean it up. It, you know, maybe the dolls won't get put right back in their place, but we can fix that tomorrow. Um, maybe the blocks will get knocked over. We can work together to rebuild that, build them. So taking risks where the consequences are pretty safe and, and pretty low is a pretty important thing to experience as a young kid. If you are a teacher or a parent or a caregiver and you see you kind of happen upon kids playing with Barbie or another doll and oh they're hitting or they're doing something that you that you don't want to do you intervene and do you say or is it is the fact that the Barbies are hitting each other for example an important thing for the kid to like when do I step in when would I not that um that's a little bit of an art and and some of it comes with knowing those children too so if the dolls are hitting each other and you're afraid the kids will start hitting each other then (laughs) then yes you step in but maybe it's just you join the play 
and and uh, become another character and, and okay. bring another doll in or, you know, a block that you pretend is a doll and, and ask what's going on and help them work through the problem. If it if it feels like they're being pretty safe, but just maybe acting out some uh, some fears or some concerns or getting some aggression out from uh, from something they've experienced, that might be a great way for them to uh, to process some of those feelings. So it is really important for adults who are caring for young kids to do some observing um, sure. of of kids in their play and uh, and make a decision when to step in. So if things are starting to get physical, maybe I'm just going to be close. Maybe I don't step in yet, but I, I put myself really close by so that I'm right there um, to intervene when, um, if and when it happens. But if it doesn't and they solve the problem by themselves or work through the negative feeling by themselves, what a beautiful moment yeah. for that child to, to get there. Yay, Barbie. Yeah, <laughs> sure. All right. So that brings me to... Um, are you seeing changes with the, the advent of, you know, an iPad or, or technology into how kids are interacting? How important, is that they, how important is it that they also have time to play with objects like blocks and dolls and dirt and funnels and whatever yeah, else is lying around the house? Marbles, I don't know. Yeah, well, and, yeah. Yeah, and, and it doesn't have to be a store-bought toy either, right? right? It, like you said, dirt, water, sand, those things are pretty motivating to young kids. Yeah. I, I think a balance is um, incredibly important for, for children with technology. Um, it's our world. It, they also need the opportunity to learn how to uh, use those devices um, in, a, in a positive way and, 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 uh, and learn the skills to use them because we all have to do it as um, students and adults. But but yes, a, a a really good balance of um, of having those physical and social interactions is um, really important. And you can do some of those things um, using technology too. So yeah. um, you maybe you learn about um, some insects that might be in your uh, neighborhood, and then you go out and and try to find some of those and go on a scavenger hunt for them. So extending and expanding on the play, whatever it is, yeah. is is always really good for, for young children. Kids, and that's, kids are processing that grasshopper in mm-hmm. South Dakota this year. I'm sorry. Yes. It's a whole different uh, a whole different thing for you to learn about this year is the grasshoppers, yeah. which kind of leads me into this next uh, question, Dr. Drew, which is there's some tough stuff, and it might not just be the grasshopper. It might be, you know, uh, fear of... of losing a farm. It might be a divorce. It might be a, a trauma of some kind. How does doll play fit into sort of that mental processing that can be so tough for kids, but worse if you don't do it and you carry it into adulthood? Yeah, 100%. I, I, I really do think that pretending and playing is the way that kids process feelings and and experiences they really don't understand. Um, So again, it's our job as the parents and the caregivers to pay attention to what kids are expressing through their play and um, and, and either step in and and play along with them um, or observe and and address some of those those tough issues um, in an appropriate way. And and maybe um, if you're really seeing a lot of aggression or 
um, or kids engaging in that play and they never seem to work through the, those yeah. feelings, that might be time to reach out for help too, um, you know, with, uh, with some mental health professionals. That's, um, you know, that's kind of their job and, and where you decide they take over, that, that just the play is not yeah. getting them through those feelings. But it's important to let kids express those feelings that we think of as negative too. And play yeah. is a real, again, a really safe place to do that. Um, you know, anger and sadness and fear are human emotions that children should learn how to express and, um, and deal with and handle. One more question. We're going to have a story here after the break where we're just going to talk Barbie and have a good time with our producers and the In the Moment team. But one story sticks out to me because we recorded that this morning because obviously we're all hard at work now. And it was a Barbie funeral. And so what I'm wondering from your perspective is how important is it for parents to take the connection between a child and a doll seriously to the point where you might need to have a, 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 a sending off ceremony for someone. How serious do you take that as an adult? Um, I, I think you, it's really important to follow kids' lead in, in those moments. And if an object is important to your child, if it's a doll or a blanket or, um, or whatever it is, then, uh, then I think we take that seriously and, and consider their feelings and their, um, and their reactions to, to that too. And what a bonding moment yeah. um, and, and how powerful um, and, and what a trust-building moment to say, boy, mom, dad, child care provider, you see me, you hear me, you understand me, and you know that this is important. Um, so even just for that, I, I think it's worth going through, uh, going through those kinds of feelings and um, experiences with children. All right. Marcy Drew, Director of Education at SDPB, thank you so much. Thank you. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. The cultural phenomenon that is the movie Barbie hits theaters this weekend. So let's revisit the Barbie we knew before Margot Robbie stepped into her pink high-heeled shoes. Before today's broadcast, I sat down with a few key members of the In the Moment team. Ellen Kester and Ari Youngman are my producers. Kara Hetland is our executive producer. And we wanted to get at the idea of not just did you play with Barbies, but if you did, how? Did you play with Barbie? Kara Hetland, we will start with you. Did you play with Barbies oh, as a young girl? For hours and hours and hours, yes. And how? Oh, well, our entire, my sister and I shared a bedroom, and our entire room was made up into our Barbie land. And But we didn't have the house. We had, I had the airplane. I was the cool one. I had the airplane. We both had matching campers. We, they slept on the campers. We just made do, and every little area and nook and cranny of the bedroom was our world. Did you have other toys? Maybe. Or was that the, those were the main toys? I mean, not, not like, did you not have any toys, but was that the dominant way you played? That was the dominant way I played, yeah. didn't. I mean, babies maybe when I was little, but this is more... You know, um, third, fourth, fifth, yeah. maybe sixth grade. Did you leave them out and then come back to them? Or did you put them away and get them out every time? I think we same? put them away and got them out every time. Yeah. Because I remember the containers in which 
you know, a secret box was great for shoes. Those are cough drops, people, and they used to be metal boxes, <laughs> and they were called sucrets, and you would save the tin. It was yes. a little tin, and you would save a they sucrets were tin for, for shoes and all kinds persons, of things. Barbie accessory yeah, Barbie box. Barbie accessories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And a Velveeta and box. other paraphernalia, but we won't go into that. Barbie accessories went into the sucrets tins. When I was in elementary yes. school, yes. yes. And a Velveeta box made a great Barbie bed. I don't remember Velveeta coming in boxes. They still do. Really? Oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I thought they were just wrapped in like plastic. No. And then you could Barbie could sleep in there or you could store Barbie in there. So you made furniture. Yeah, absolutely. Tip it upside it's down as airplane. Because oh, that Ken was the pilot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it had seats and a table and it was, you know, it was first class all the way, baby. Yeah. So Barbie rode in the plane and Ken flew it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. In your world. Do you ever put Barbie up front? No. Do you ever get, no. (laughs) No, Barbie was the passenger. Yeah, but Skipper and Francie and all the rest, yeah, they would take trips. Yeah. Yeah. Did your children play with Barbies then? Did you pass those dolls down? I did. I saved everything, and and I, I remember my grandmother uh, one Christmas hand sewed an entire briefcase, a big brown, thick briefcase with locks. We had the keys um, <laughs> filled with Barbie clothes. And there was a wedding dress, and there were long dresses and short dresses and swimming suits. And it was just my sister and my cousin and I each got matching briefcases. And so I saved that. I saved my camper. It has long been destroyed by my three daughters. But I saved the clothes and my original Barbie. But that really kind of got destroyed in the box and the heat in the attic. But So they got new Barbies. Nice. Yes. But I had one Barbie. I didn't have 50 like my girls had. I had one, and that one Barbie had to dress. She was Barbie. She was Barbie. They weren't Barbies. There was a Barbie. One. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Ellen Kester, how did you play with Barbies? Or Barbie, I guess. <laughs> I think of it as plural, but... Yeah, I think of them all as Barbie. Yeah, I did Cinderella over and over and over again. Just with... Like I would the, have, the like, Hans all of Hans Christian... Them. Aunt, no, that's not a Hans Christian. Like the French fairy tale Cinderella or like the Barbie movie Cinderella? It was like, actually the Brandy movie Cinderella, I think. Brandy's movie yeah. Cinderella. <laughs> <laughs> so they would all... Like, I would dress them all in their outfits, and then there would be one that was, like, Cinderella, and she would have a pre-ball outfit and then a ball outfit. And then they, the Ken doll would go and look at all the different Barbies, and he would choose the Cinderella one. And <laughs> I would just act out that movie. Um, I, the, for the Barbie movies, I like the Swan Lake. And I think there was some reenactments there of that movie, too. So for you, it's storytelling. Yeah. And, you know, you're... A writer today, yep. so you're still storytelling, mm-hmm. but you don't use Barbie to help you. No. Like, when did you? <laughs> did I don't you... use Barbie to write the show. <laughs> use Barbie to inspire your uh, literary creativity now. But did you know that when you were a kid that you were, like, did you ever have any awareness that that's what I, you were doing? I as... think I did mainly yeah. not through Barbie, but through American Girl, because okay. my American Girl was Kit Kitteridge, who was a writer. Yes. So yeah. I would like think of myself as Kit a lot. Also, because I had the short blonde hair. Yeah. <laughs> Ellen Kester is today our American girl. <laughs> There's a book series. <laughs> our young men, did you play with Barbies? Oh, yes, I played with Barbies. I had 
maybe five Barbies, but I remember, and I think we have it on home video, um, when I got my first Barbie for my birthday oh. when I was maybe three or four years old. How lucky that you have a video of that. Do you recall, like, were you squealing with delight? Or was oh, it, I was did so you excited. Want, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I must have known what Barbie was, you know, at that time, and so I opened it up, and it's a Barbie! You know, <laughs> so excited. Um, and I still have that Barbie. Actually, I brought it with me to work today. Oh, she's um, not in the studio with us. She's not in the studio mm-hmm. yet. She's she's in the newsroom waiting for us to finish. She's <laughs> taking care of the work for us. How yes. did you play? Because your Barbie was your pal. Yes, my Barbie yeah. was my friend. So mine was more of a connection-based relationship with Barbie. Um, so whatever I was doing, Barbie came with me. So if I was outside and I was swimming in the lake... Barbie was swimming in the lake, too. If I was outside and I was riding my bike, Barbie was in a little wagon behind my bike. Um, So she came with me on all my adventures. Um, And you never lost her. Was there ever a moment where, like, Barbie got left behind? No. No. No, Barbie came with me all the time. I think I only ever lost one Barbie, and um, she didn't make it because she was set on top of a lamp, and she melted. (laughs) Yep. Besides so we, that last anecdote, you're the responsible one. Yeah. <laughs> responsible well, one. Carries through my now. brother set her on the lamp, and so we had a mm. we had a funeral for Barbie out in the garden. We buried her <laughs> in a shoebox, and she's still out there somewhere. Did you have a Ken? I did. I did. had I had one Ken doll, and sometimes, if I was lucky, my brother would play Barbies with me. Yeah. So my brother played Barbies with me, but he played, we would lay our Barbies out, we would take off all their clothes and lay the naked Barbies out, and then we would lay all the clothes out, and then we would choose, which Barbie do you want to be today? And it was never, do you want to play? It was, do be, do, which Barbie do you want to be? And so then he would be that Barbie, and I would be this Barbie, and once we had taken turns to establish that, then we chose all the clothes, <laughs> what will your Barbie wear? <laughs> and then there was a hours-long process of, dressing and doing hair and then we would say how do you want to play and they would say I want to play office or I want to play school or I want to play they're on the farm and then then we would engage in the actual play and I always wanted to play cars instead because I didn't it took too long to get to the playing part if you're playing with your older brother he was very methodical (laughs) the rules but it was that social Mm -hmm. it was that learning how to Mm -hmm. take turns it was learning how to compromise you don't always get what you want but next time maybe you'll get uh, the favorite dress or the favorite pair of boots and um, I'm sure it took us all day that's all we did Mm -hmm. all day in the summer all day yeah all day long what sticks with you about Barbie today, Kara? Do you ever, is it just something from your childhood and your past, mm. or is there something that today you think, yeah, that, that had meaning to me, that was worth it? Because obviously I miss my brother, and I, you know, I think of him when I think of Barbie because it was so much part of our childhood. That's easy. But for you, I mean, do you think your sister, or do you think of uh, executive Barbie? <laughs> I think that... <laughs> No matter how we played with Barbie, no matter what our storyline is, Barbie could do anything. And I think as a little girl in the early 1970s playing Barbie, knowing that you could do anything, be anything, I think that's what I took with me. That's Barbie. Barbie could do it all. Ellen, things that stick with you today about Barbie... I don't know about Barbie in particular. I think that was a, she was what I needed her to be when I was 
six or seven or eight. Yeah. I guess I haven't thought about Barbie since seeing the amazing trailer for the new Barbie <laughs> movie. <laughs> Ari? Um, Barbie was such a generational thing for me. My grandma, um, you know, she went out and made me a Barbie tent and she, mm-hmm. um, she sold me Barbie clothes and that's what I would get for Christmas and my birthdays. Um, and then I passed my Barbies on to my foster kiddos and we would play Barbies together. So, you know, it's generation after generation playing with these and it's actually the same Barbies. Um, mm. And so it's kind of a, a family. It's definitely, for me, Barbies are connection. You know, it's playing with my nieces. It's playing with my nephews. It's playing with my mom when I was little or my brother when he would play Barbies with me. So it's definitely, Barbie is connection for me. Yeah, Barbie is love. Ugh. Well, Barbie's going to help us do the show today. <laughs> Thanks for stopping by. <laughs> Sioux Falls musician Greta Smith is in search of all things art, beauty, and poetry, and she is taking the stage Saturday night at Levitt at the Falls. But first, she is with me here in the studio. Greta, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Greta Celeste. Yes, Greta Celeste. <laughs> so I could have told everybody Greta Celeste was going to be on, and they would, they would have thought <laughs> that we had the director of the Barbie movie, but instead we have someone you can see this weekend in Sioux Falls, make her own art on stage. I'm I'm so excited. Is this your first Levitt performance, or you've done it before, haven't you? Yes, it's actually my third. Third. Year, third summer, July, July. I think August the first year I did, and then July last yeah. year, and July this year. The energy of this outdoor summer, the tradition of it, I'm already hooked. <laughs> How about as a performer? What's it like? Oh, it's wonderful. I don't play a lot of shows. I play a lot of smaller coffee shops or um, just like a, I play a flower farm sometimes, um, but being at the Levitt is so different and it's yeah. so like energetic and just like with the, all the people and the outdoor atmosphere too. It's really lovely. Tell me a little bit about how you come to music. Was uh, music first? Was writing first for you? I would say music. I grew up in a family that listened to a lot of music. My dad would play CDs or records all of the time, and I have a lot of my music taste now, I find, is thanks to my dad. Listen to a lot of older um, influences and just a broad range of music. My mom sang at church. Um, She was on a worship team there, played guitar. And so I always did choir in starting, I think, in first grade. I started in, I did the show choir too. I'm a big theater nerd as well. Mm. Um, Did choir all throughout. Um, school and college, did band in high school, not in college, and in college I picked up guitar. My brother started to play it, and I remember, like, sitting next to him and trying to, like, put my fingers on the strings and just being like, ow, these hurt, you know? (laughs) The strings are metal, and my fingertips are so soft, but joined a worship team in college and played a lot um, there on guitar and kind of got my legs under me with rhythm. And uh, for, as writing goes, they're kind of one and the same, but also two separate entities. I started writing in, I think, 2017. Me and a friend of mine in high school, we'd pass around notebooks and we'd write poems in them just as a way of keeping the friendship very close and expressing some of the deeper things that we were feeling. Yeah. Um, and so that's when I started writing poetry. I started write, writing rhyming poetry in high school, just rhyming. Um, that was <laughs> it. And I now I write free verse poetry and um, songs as well. So 
And some inspiration from the art world, from Monet. Tell me a little Mm -hmm. bit about that and the upcoming work that you're hoping to to put in the world. Yeah, absolutely. I'm a long time, at, at college I studied art as well as media studies and English, but art is a big focus for me. Um, I think uh, dating back to um, middle school, there was one birthday, I don't remember which birthday it was, but every single gift I got was either it was a notebook, a sketchbook, or a how to draw this, or a set of (laughs) crayons, or pastels, or pencils, and I thought, oh, this is just like my art birthday or something, and from there I I carried on sketchbooks, and I did a lot of portraiture, and um, a lot of drawing, and I was big on art classes. Um, and once in college, um, my sophomore year of college it was 2020 in January before COVID hit, we took a tour and we went to one of the stops was in Paris. We stopped at the Louvre and we stopped at the Musée d'Orsay. And one level of the Musée d'Orsay is completely dedicated to Impressionism and Impressionist works, um, which is kind of the study of things as they are in the moment, if you will. Um, just very carefree and focused on movement and beauty and at the time that was really um groundbreaking for the art world they didn't like the impressionist painters like Monet um like even and one of my big influences also on the tail end of that moving into a different movement is Matisse who was focused on the color and the different ways that art moves and so I really fell in love with a lot of those paintings um specifically of Monet's Van Gogh also um you know the big names but um that really inspired me to think about what it meant to observe beauty kind of as it is happening and unfolding in front of you and to capture it as quickly as you can, but without losing the integrity of the scene and the things that you are um, noticing and appreciating. And they lead to just beautiful, moving works of art, I think more so than any realist painting, because I've always thought, why would you paint something that you can just look at? You want to add your own touch to it. Um, we so had the, a go ahead. author on the show yesterday who talked about uh, Monet and Cezanne and mm-hmm. the idea that the eye, the eye is not a camera. And they were saying that the human experience matters to this. The, you know, the human mm-hmm. that's looking at the, for Monet, the light on uh, the lily or Cezanne. I don't know if I'm saying his name right, by the way. But, you know, looking at the mountains and painting them again and again. Mm-hmm. What is the moment that your visual grip hangs on to the fact that it's a mountain versus all the little individual pieces Definitely. of it. And you're right, it just rocked the, the art world. Mm-hmm. They said it's unfinished, it's mm-hmm. sloppy, it's mm-hmm. you know lazy, you're not talented. How is that feeding into music for mm. you that, um, that we'll be able to hear yeah. on Saturday or even in a recording in the future? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that idea of unfinished and um, maybe messy is something, I would use the word messy to describe myself. Organic is a nice way to say it, but my art is very much like that, whether it is painting, and I do paint as well. I'm not a great painter. Um, Can't lay claim to any title of impressionist or anything like that, but um, there was a kind of a moment where I um, was sitting down to think, I had a lot of friends, a lot of close friends. They say, when can you put, can you put your stuff on Spotify? My roommate's like, can you please put the song on Spotify? I just want to listen to it. Um, Mariah, if you're listening, that was you. Um, and so I kind of got to a point where I would, I would text people my voice memos. The people I knew wanted to hear them, my best friends. I'd be like, oh, I wrote this one. And they'd be like, oh, I love this. I love that. And they'd have me um, kind of talk through with some of what it means because I'm a very intentional songer. And every word, every phrase has a different meaning, ties back to something else. Or just even just in a word, there's certain maybe buzzwords, if you want to call them pretty words, that mean special things to me, which you only know if you can hear me explain them. Um, and so they're like, can you just please release these? And I found I didn't have something to bind them all together. 
because I've had all these songs that I like and songs that I've written, the songs that I play at the Levitt that I've had written since, you know, 2018. It's, it's a cool song, but what does it mean? So I started cultivating an approach to songwriting that was focused on a theme because I found that the most successful albums and the works that we want to release and, and truly are proud of as artists are the ones that have a strong central theme running through them, something that means something to us that encapsulates our time in whatever like whatever time period we're going through. Like you see this in artists, they're like, this was Matisse's red, you know, his red period. Right. He just did a bunch of red paintings. And so um, for me, the um, kind of the underlying thread was this unfinished, uh, recorded, uh, just on my phone, um, voice memo style where you can hear my voice is very soft and it's very... Um, filled with emotion as I'm recording the song like a minute after I finished writing it. Yeah. And to me, those recordings that I was sending out to my friends, they're like, can you just publish this one? Because if you go into a studio and record it, I mean, that there's an expense to that. I did just graduate college. I don't have all those connections. And I'd like to produce things with, you know, more instruments and more levels to the music, but I only have me and my guitar. It's my like voice. a song chat book. Yes, it is. It really is. It's And so it yeah. is unfinished. It is messy in a way, but I think there's a lot of beauty and a lot of humanity in that. And so those are the tracks um, tied together with this theme of kind of the beauty of humanity, of gentleness, of breaking, of uh, so the soft and vulnerable sides of difficult things, but still finding the, the upsides and the beauty in that. that. That's what ties together the work. Greta Smith, thank you so much for being here with us today. Go down to the Levitt and see her. And if you can't get there, STPB streams the Levitt for you every week so you can see it um, online as well. It was very nice to meet you. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much. I'm going to wrap up the show real quick. Thank you for listening. We hope that today's show served you. Welcome to Summer in South Dakota. For Monday, we bring you Summer with the Symphony that's hosted and produced by Matt Wiesner. By the way, you can watch some of these conversations on our website. Go to SDPB's YouTube page. You can also tune in at 7 o'clock Central, 6 Mountain, every day to hear in the moment. If you can't catch either broadcast, then download our podcast. From all of us at South Dakota Public Broadcasting, we thank you for listening. <laughs>